Hello, fellow teachers. Welcome to Teaching with Power. This is Ben Wilcox, and I want to thank you for letting me be a part of your scripture study or your lesson prep this week. The purpose of the channel is to help you to either teach or study the scriptures with more relevancy and power. Teachers, if you're interested in obtaining the handouts, the slides, lesson plans that I put together to help teachers to reduce their preparation time and increase their confidence in the classroom, and you're just going to go to teachingwithpower.com and you're going to find links to my blog and Etsy shop where all those materials are available. And this week, we're going to be studying 1 Nephi chapter 16 through 22. Uh, I got to say something here. This is one of those weeks where I look at the chapter selection and I say, really? (laughs) 16 through 22? Ah, There's so much material there. Uh, uh, These chapters contain what I would call the three B's of Lehi's journey, uh, each one teaching a very, very powerful lesson. Uh, uh, Can you name those, by the way? The three B's of First Nephi, chapter 16 through 17 in particular. And now the first one that probably comes to mind is the boat. Right? They're going to build a boat to the promised land. But then we've got the story of Nephi's broken bow. And then the other one is probably a bit harder to identify. But in these chapters, we're introduced to the Liahona which was described as a small, round ball. So, those are our three Bs. And in the right order, it would be the ball, the bow, and the boat. But then, we've got some Isaiah chapters in there, some really important sermons given by Nephi, and more. So many great lessons, stories, doctrines, profound truths that we could cover this week. We can't do it all. And as a teacher, you can't do it all. So I'm going to try to model good teaching and and select just a few stories or truths that I would probably focus on if I were teaching this week. But I encourage you to pray as a parent or a teacher for guidance as to which principles that you feel your students need most. So that's it. Grab your scriptures and your marking pencils. It's time to dig deep. Lesson number one, the ball. For an object, I would bring in a compass and set it at the front of my class. Now, if you don't have a compass and you'd like to purchase one on Amazon, I'll put a link to a very inexpensive one in the video description. Then for an icebreaker, I would tell two stories. The first one, uh, Geraldine Largie was hiking through deep, thick woods on the Appalachian Trail in 2013 when she went off the trail just a little ways to use the bathroom. And she got turned around and couldn't find her way back to the trail. She wandered for a time looking for the trail, but eventually realized that she was lost. She decided to stop, set up camp, and wait to be rescued. She survived for about a month on her own, until she died of starvation and exposure. And her campsite wasn't found for a couple of years, but when it was, it was discovered less than a mile from the trail. 
she had no compass with her. Now, if she had, and, and a knowledge of how to use it, she could have simply moved in the direction that she knew she had left the trail. And, and instead of dying, probably would have been back on her way in a matter of minutes. Now, a different story. During World War II, the supply ship SS Alcoa Guide was on its way to Guadalupe Island in the Caribbean when it was attacked and sunk by a German U-boat. So while floating in a lifeboat on the open sea, junior engineer Walter Semenov had a compass and knew how to use it. And he and the other survivors with him sailed this small boat in the direction that they knew the shipping lanes were. And subsequently, they were rescued within three days of the attack. And they survived. So, these two stories illustrate how this small, unassuming object can make the difference between life and death. Having a means of orienting yourself, keeping yourself traveling in the right direction, can be essential to safety and survival. They can keep us from getting lost. Now, sadly, spiritually speaking, much of our world is lost. A lot have, have lost their moral bearings and are being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. M. Russell Ballard made that observation about our modern society. He said, being lost can apply to whole societies as well as to individuals. Today we live in a time when much of this world has lost its way, particularly with regard to values and priorities. So have you ever felt lost? Have the competing voices and opinions and philosophies of men pulled you in various directions? If you've ever felt that way, 1 Nephi chapter 16, with a little help from Alma 37, can help us. It can make a big difference in helping us to find our way. Now, we all know that the book of 1 Nephi is about a group of people making a journey. A journey through the wilderness. And in his infinite mercy and wisdom, God provided them with guidance. And that guidance came in the form of a small but very sacred object called the Liahona. Now, it's not called the Liahona in First Nephi. It's called the ball. Now, we don't hear it called the Liahona until Alma chapter 37, when Alma tells us what that word actually means. Liahona in Nephite means compass. The Lord gave them a compass. Now, if you wish to help your students visualize what the Liahona was like and how Lehi and his family used it, you could show them the Book of Mormon video entitled, The Lord Provides the Liahona. And as they watch, have them look for how the Liahona helped Lehi and his family. An activity that I like to do with the story of the Liahona is to have my class members Look for and mark every description they can find of the Liahona in their scriptures. What it looked like, what it did, how it worked. And make a giant list of all those details. 
And to help streamline that study, I use the following handout to guide them to the verses where we're going to find all of those descriptions. If you feel like having your students fill out the entire handout may take way too much time, you can put your students into partnerships and have one partner find all of the descriptions in 1 Nephi chapter 16, and the other find all the ones that are in Alma chapter 37. And then they can share their answers with each other. But if they do this activity, here is what they're likely to find. In 1 Nephi chapter 16, it was found in front of the tent door. That's in verse 10. Also in verse 10, we learn that it was a round ball, that it was of curious workmanship, that it was made of fine brass, and that it had two spindles, and one of those spindles pointed the way to go. In verse 16, it gave them directions and led them to the more fertile parts of the wilderness. In 28, it worked according to the faith, diligence, and heed they gave unto them. In verse 29, we've got a few here, four. The writing on them was plain to be read. It gave them understanding concerning the ways of the Lord. The writing changed from time to time. And it was a small thing that brought to pass great things. And then from verses 30 to 31, it showed them where to obtain food. And now for the ones that we find in Alma chapter 37. In verse 38, we learn that it was a compass and that the Lord prepared it. In 39, it showed them their course through the wilderness. In verse 40, it worked according to their faith in God. And it was the source of miracles. Verse 41 tells us that when they were lazy and unbelieving, then the ball stopped working, and they didn't see any more marvelous works, and they didn't progress in their journey. In 42, not following it caused them to tarry, not travel in a direct course, and they were afflicted. And then verse 43 they did not prosper when they ignored it. Now, here's the cool part, once they finish that. The Liahona was never meant to be a mere tool to help Lehi and his family to get to the promised land. God also intended it to be a symbol, a metaphor, an ancient object lesson, if you will, to teach them and us an important lesson. And we know that this was God's intention because of what Alma tells us in chapter 37, verses 43 through 46. And here I would read those verses out loud as a teacher to my class and invite them to look for the answers to the following three questions as you read them to them. So question number one, can you find the two words that Alma uses that mean the same thing as symbol or metaphor in these verses. 
Question two, and this is a like in the scriptures type question. What does Alma compare the Liahona to? What is it a symbol for? And question number three, what promises does Alma make to those who will follow this Liahona? Here we go. I'll read those verses. And now, my son, I would that ye should understand that these things are not without a shadow. For as our fathers were slothful to give heed to this compass, now these things were temporal, they did not prosper. Even so it is with things which are spiritual. For behold, it is as easy to give heed to the word of Christ, which will point to you a straight course to eternal bliss, as it was for our fathers to give heed to this compass, which would point unto them a straight course to the promised land. And now I say, is there not a type in this thing? For just as surely as this director did bring our fathers, by following its course, to the promised land, shall the words of Christ, if we follow their course, carry us beyond this veil of sorrow into a far better land of promise. O my son, do not let us be slothful because of the easiness of the way. For so was it with our fathers, for so was it prepared for them, that if they would look, they might live. Even so it is with us. The way is prepared, and if we will look, we may live forever. So, answer number one. What are the two words that mean the same as symbol? In verse 43, he says, These things are not without a shadow. And in verse 45, he asks, Is there not a type in these things? Shadow, type, symbol, metaphor, all the same idea. Question number two, uh, what is the Liahona a symbol for? It's the words of Christ. Now, the word of Christ is manifested by any number of things. It represents anything from God or Christ that helps to guide or direct us. So, it's the scriptures, the teachings of the living prophets, the promptings of the Holy Ghost, the counsels of local church leaders, the seminary and institute program, patriarchal blessings. The Liahona can be a representation of all of these things, and they act as our compass that leads us through the wilderness of life to our promised land, celestial glory. Now, the answer to number three, the promises for following those words of Christ. From verse 43, the suggestion is that we will prosper if we're not slothful to give heed to them. The words of Christ will point us in a straight course to eternal bliss, to our promised land. They'll bring us ever closer to a far better promised land beyond this veil of sorrow. And if we but look to them, we will live and live forever. And the Liahona is a potent symbol for the power of the words of Christ to guide, to protect, and to bless us. 
So now, now is the fun part. Let's go back to our Liahona chart and substitute the Liahona with the words of Christ and ask, how do the words of Christ fit these descriptions? And now you just go through and pick whichever ones you want and think of how they match that particular description. And I love the insights that I've gathered over the years from my students. And you're sure to hear even more uh, different ones uh, than the ones that I've got. But here are some of my favorites. From verse 10, they were found in front of the tent door. The words of Christ are right in front of us. We don't have to go far to find them. They're easy to get our hands on. The scriptures and decades worth of general conference and the church magazines and church manuals are probably right in the palm of your hand on your cell phone. It doesn't take much to get a patriarchal blessing. Just a quick phone call to set up an interview with your bishop. And before you know it, you'll be sitting under the hands of a divinely inspired patriarch, giving you personal guidance. And the Holy Ghost is our constant companion, if we've received the gift of it. So let's be careful not to be slothful because of the easiness of the way, as Alma warns us later. It's a round ball. I'm not sure about this one, but the circle is usually symbolic of eternity. The words of Christ remind us that the course of the Lord is one eternal round. It was of curious workmanship. Now, that phrase tells us that the Liahona was obviously not man-made. Just like the words of Christ. They aren't from men or from the mind of men, but from God. It was made of fine brass. Well-made, beautiful, shiny, solid. The words of Christ are sound and beautiful. They reflect God's light and they're precious of great worth. It had two spindles and one pointed the way to go. And I had to really stop and think about this one. If there were two spindles, where did the other one point? My theory? It pointed true north. Right? Like Alma tells us, it was a compass. A compass points north, which is really helpful in keeping our bearings. But how nice for Lehi and his family that not only did it tell them where north was, but how they should travel in relation to north. And what a cool symbol for the words of Christ. To me, the true north spindle is a lot like the scriptures. They establish the eternal, unchanging, basic doctrines of the gospel that apply to all times and all peoples. But the words of the living prophets and the promptings of the Holy Ghost are like that second spindle that helps us to navigate our current times and our personal lives in accordance with those true North principles. They help us to keep our spiritual bearings and how to travel through the wilderness of life in relation to them. Now, that's just an opinion. I'm not exactly sure if that's how the two spindles worked, but that symbolism makes sense to me. It gave them directions. The word of Christ gives us directions. 
it led them to the more fertile parts of the wilderness. The words of Christ lead us to the more fertile parts of the wilderness of life. Life is is like a wilderness to us, isn't it? Some portions of that wilderness are better than others. The words of Christ keep us in those areas. They work according to the faith, diligence, and heed that we give unto them. So they only work under certain circumstances. Faith. If we don't believe that the words of Christ can help us, they probably won't. Diligence. If we aren't diligent in studying them, listening to them, they won't do us any good. And if we don't give heed to what they teach or seek to apply what they teach, then they'll be ineffective. The scriptures will just become a nice book of stories. Uh, The teachings of the prophets, some good recommendations from a group of old men, and the promptings of the Spirit, just an annoying prick of the conscience. But if we give heed to them, they'll lead our lives in the right direction. Uh, The writing on them was plain to be read, just like the words of Christ plainly teach us the truths of the gospel especially the words of the living prophets. They speak plainly and audibly and unmistakably to us. They're familiar with our current times and our language and our issues. Though recognizing the messages of the scriptures and the promptings of the Holy Ghost can take time and practice to develop, the words of the living prophets are plain and straightforward gave them understanding concerning the ways of the Lord, just like the words of Christ give us that kind of understanding. The words changed from time to time. I like this one. Certain verses and stories and general conference talks can mean one thing to me at one point in my life and then can teach me completely different things at another. Their meanings change depending on our circumstances and position at the time. They're meant to guide us for a lifetime. It was a small thing that brought to pass great things. Well, the scriptures, the prophets, the Holy Ghost may seem like small things. But boy, do they ever make a difference when used in the right way. The Leahona showed them where to obtain food. The words of Christ spiritually feed us. Later in 2 Nephi, we're going to be instructed to feast upon the words of Christ. And now to the descriptions in Alma chapter 37. It was a compass. We've already discussed that symbolism. The Lord prepared it. Again, curious workmanship. The Lord prepared these things, not man. It showed them their course through the wilderness, just as the words of Christ show us the course through our wilderness. It worked only according to their faith in God. We discussed that already. It was the source of miracles. If we have faith, these things are going to have a miraculous impact on our lives. But there are consequences when we don't use them the right way. When we're slothful, lazy, or unbelieving, we're not going to see the marvelous works that can come from them, and we'll get lost in our journey. 
not following it caused them to tarry, not travel in a direct course, and they were afflicted. If we don't follow our Leahona, then we're going to stall and tarry in our progress. We're going to plateau. We're going to run to and fro wondering what we should do. We may find ourselves afflicted by the dangers and the dreariness of our spiritual wilderness. And they didn't prosper when they ignored it. We won't prosper if we ignore the words of Christ. Now, isn't that cool? I love that. I love symbolism. So much fun. So our truth, the words of Christ are like a compass. If we give heed to their direction, they will lead us in a straight course to eternal bliss. And to take these teachings to heart, a question, when have you seen the words of Christ fit one of these descriptions in your life and how? Now, now I think that one of the best symbols for life that we find in the scriptures is wilderness. Life is like a wilderness, and it's easy to get lost in the wilderness when you don't have the proper tools and knowledge. Lucky for us that God has provided us with a compass. The words of Christ. The words of Christ have been my guide, my compass, my celestial GPS. I admit that there have been times in my life where I felt lost, And the words of Christ have guided me through the rocky terrain of trial and the thick overgrowth of doubt. For me, the scriptures have been one of the most helpful liahonas that I've ever received guidance from. I remember feeling lost as a teenager. And 2 Nephi chapter 31 showed me the way to go. I remember feeling lost as a missionary. And Jacob chapter 5 showed me the way to go. I remember feeling lost as a parent. And the book of Enos showed me the way to go. And I remember feeling lost as a new bishop. And Mosiah chapter 2 showed me the way to go. The words of Christ show us the way. They're our compass. Let's follow our compass so that we can be more like the guys in the lifeboat than the woman on the Appalachian Trail. We will be saved rather than lost forever. My advice then, just like your little league coach used to say, keep your eye on the ball, right? Let's keep our eye on our Leahona. Now our second B, the bow. And ah, I love this story. For an object, I might bring in a bow and arrow, if if you have access to one. If not, then the icebreaker can serve as an object lesson. And what you need for this one is a transparent jar of dry beans or popcorn kernels and a ping pong ball. Here's a picture of the one that I use. Now, I have a big one 
but it still works just fine with a smaller mason jar, if you like. And I start by showing them the ping pong ball and saying that this represents them. And then you place it in the jar, screw the lid on, and say, have any of you ever felt like life did this to you? And then I turn the jar upside down and thump it onto the table. I can promise you that everyone is going to nod in agreement. And I ask, have you ever felt like everything came crashing down around you? Like the weight of the world landed on your shoulders? Have you ever had a day like this? Or a week? A year? Well, what do you do? What do you do when you feel buried by life's problems, its challenges, its misfortunes? First Nephi chapter 16 is going to help us out. And then I just leave the jar on the table upside down and tell them that we're going to come back to it later in the lesson. Nephi is going to show us what we can do in situations like that. While his family was traveling through the wilderness, they face a huge problem. They faced a lot of problems, but this one was particularly big. Can you find what it was in 1 Nephi 16, verses 18 through 19? And you guessed it, Nephi's bow breaks. Which means the family has no way to obtain food. That's kind of a problem. And this causes the families to become much fatigued, and they begin to suffer much for the want of food. Have you ever found yourself in similar circumstances? Has something tragic ever befallen you? Have you ever felt much fatigued? Fatigued by life? Fatigued by your hardships? Fatigued by unanswered questions? Or have you ever suffered? Physically, mentally, spiritually? Have you ever been in want? Financial want? Emotional want? The want that stems from unfulfilled desires or longings? Blessings that everybody else seems to be enjoying, but you have been deprived of? Nephi is going to teach us what to do when the bow breaks. And the rest of his family is going to teach us what not to do when the bow breaks. We're going to observe two different reactions to fatiguing, suffering, wanting kinds of problems. And here, as a teacher, I'd pair up my students into groups of two. And together, they're going to read 1 Nephi chapter 16, verses 18 through 24, and then jump over to verses 30 through 32. And they're just going to take turns going back and forth reading those verses. But you're going to want to encourage them to read slowly, and perhaps even with a colored pencil in their hands, or on their phones uh, being ready to digitally highlight some things. Whoever is the taller of the two in the pair, as they read the verses, are going to be looking for and marking all the words and phrases that describe how the family reacts to the broken bow. 
whoever is the shorter of the two is going to look for and mark all the words and phrases that describe how Nephi reacts to the broken bow. And then both groups are going to consider the following question. Did that reaction help in any way? Now, I'm not going to read all those verses to you here, but I encourage you to read them looking for the two reactions and their results. And what were those results? Uh, for the family's reaction, in verse 18, they get angry. In verse 20, they murmur exceedingly. And that word murmur shows up two more times in that one verse. Lots of murmuring going on. And also in verse 20, they became exceedingly sorrowful. In verse 22, they hardened their hearts. And also in verse 22, they were found to be complaining against the Lord their God. And did that reaction help? Did it help the situation at all? Did it make any difference in solving the problem? <laughs> nope. That reaction had no bearing on what eventually is going to solve their problem. What about Nephi? What did he do? He didn't complain. He didn't get angry. He didn't harden his heart. Now, instead, in verse 23, he did make out of wood a bow and out of a straight stick an arrow. And then he goes to his father in verse 24 and has him inquire of the Lord where he should go to obtain food. And did this reaction help the situation? Yes, that's what actually solves the problem. Nephi's faith and resourcefulness resolves their plight and the family is fed once again. Therefore, to liken the scriptures, what does this situation teach us about facing life's challenges? Here's what it teaches me. When things go wrong, anger, complaining, exceeding sorrow. And I note the word exceeding is important there because I think sorrow is an important part of dealing with our problems. But exceeding sorrow doesn't help so much. And hardening my heart does me absolutely no good. It's a complete waste of my energies. Yes, it might feel good and self-satisfying to throw ourselves a little pity party and cry, woe is me, and get angry at God and the world. But it doesn't help. It's not even so much bad as useless. Nephi shows us a better way. Instead of complaining, he gets to work. He's what I would call proactive. Right? He recognizes his own power to resolve his problems and looks around and he asks, is there anything that I can control here? I can't control the way that other people react. I can't control the past. The fact that my bow is broken. It happened. Can't go back. Can't take that away. But what can I control? I can control how I react to the problem. I can control my attitude. I can do something, and I can try to fix it. 
Maybe it'll work, maybe it won't, but at least I'm going to try. I'm going to try making my own bow and arrow. Perhaps that's going to work. At least I'm doing something. But notice that that's not all Nephi does. The solutions to our problems are not always going to come solely by our own efforts and dogged determination. They help. They're a big part of the equation. But notice that Nephi includes somebody else in his solution. God. He goes to the source of all truth and inquires of the Lord for help. We're not expected to face our afflictions all by ourselves. God's there to help us too. These two efforts combined are far more powerful than either one is alone. It's a two-pronged attack on adversity. Proactivity and prayer. That reminds me of this quote that's attributed to St. Ignatius. Pray as if everything depends on God. Work as if everything depends on you. So our truth here, here's how I would word it. When life breaks my bow, proactivity and prayer are far more effective than fury and fussing. And I'd like to include here another brief insight from this chapter in a similar vein. Verses 34 through 36 presents the family with another problem. Ishmael dies. And how do they react this time? It says they begin to mourn. Completely normal, completely appropriate reaction for that situation. But then notice what they do next. They begin to murmur against Lehi. They start listing all of their sufferings. They say, our father is dead. That's the present challenge. But notice that they don't stop there. And we have wandered much in the wilderness, and we have suffered much affliction, hunger, thirst, and fatigue. So there they add all of their past problems as well. But then they don't stop there. And after all these sufferings, we must perish in the wilderness with hunger. So now what do they add? Future problems. They're projecting future problems and suffering as well. So now they're suffering past, present, and future problems all at once. Now, have you ever done something like that? I know I have. I think it's quite common for people to react to problems in this way. For example, a student fails a test, and they say, I failed this test. And think of all the tests I've failed in the past. And I'm always going to fail, no matter what I do. Or we have a tough month financially, and we say, we don't have enough money to pay all the bills this month. And think of all the financial problems we've had in the past, And we are always going to struggle financially, no matter what we do. Or you struggle with an addiction and relapse and say, I've messed up again. I always mess up and I'm always going to mess up. I'm never going to get over this. See, I call this reaction compounding the crisis. And what this approach often leads to is what we see in verse 36. They desire to return to Jerusalem. They want to give up, compounding the crisis 
tempts us to resign ourselves to failure and lose vision and lose hope. We don't want to try anymore. We may give up on our goals, give up on our calling, give up on our marriage, give up on our children, our faith. And it may even lead some to one of the most tragic forms of giving up, taking your own life. And I believe that God always gives us sufficient strength to face our present problems. But when we add our past trials and project future ones, maybe he looks down at us and he says, you know, you are carrying a burden that I never intended for you to carry. When we do that, are we surprised that we feel so overwhelmed and hopeless? So maybe we could add this to our our truth. When life breaks your bow, also remember, don't compound the crisis. Face your present problems, not past and future ones too. So back to our object lesson. What should we do when the world crashes down around us? What did Nephi just teach us? Is there a way out of these situations? Because right now, that ping pong ball looks pretty hopeless. But what works? Proactivity and prayer. Right? Work and pray. Work and pray. And as I say those words, I pick up the upside down jar and I shake it up and down. And this is so cool. What eventually happens is the ping pong ball is going to rise to the top of the jar. And I like to make the point that if you take the Nephi approach, you're always going to come out on top of your problems. Reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from Joseph Smith, a man who understood something about fatigue, want, and suffering. He said, if I were sunk in the lowest pit of Nova Scotia, with the Rocky Mountains piled on me, I would hang on, exercise faith, and keep up good courage, and I would come out on top. Isn't that good? For an I will go and do then. How could you apply Nephi's attitude to one of your present problems? Is there anything within your control that you could do to build your own bow? And how might you include the Lord in dealing with your challenge? And, you know, personally, this has been such a a helpful lesson in my life. When life has broken my bow, I've often thought to myself, how would Nephi handle this? And usually that gives me some pretty helpful insight. When life conspires to bury us, let's not just wallow in the pit of self-pity or abandon ourselves to anguish. Now, instead, we can be Nephites. We can rely on God's guidance and our own gumption, on God's insight and our own ingenuity. And when we do this, I'm confident that we will eventually end up on top of our problems. So when life breaks your bow, make a new one and inquire of the Lord for help. I'm fairly confident that when we approach our problems like that, we're going to obtain the food that we need once again.
All right, our third and final B, the boat. And I'm going to be slightly more brief on this one because I feel that a lot of the principles that this story teaches, they were covered in my rewards and rebukes activity that we did back in 1 Nephi chapters 1 through 7. But a quick idea. For an icebreaker, before the lesson and without them knowing, I like to take a dollar bill and place it between pages six and seven of one of my class members' scriptures. And then when class begins, I call on that student to come forward with only their scriptures. And I tell them that I want them to give me a dollar. They'll look confused and they'll probably say, I I can't do that. And then I I stay persistent and I say, no, no, I believe in you. I know that you can do this. Give me a dollar. And when they express that they still can't do it, I ask them to read 1 Nephi chapter 3, verse 7, and try again. And when they open that page, they're going to find the dollar there. And when they give it to you, tell them to read the verse. And it came to pass that I, Nephi, said unto my father, I will go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded. For I know that the Lord giveth no commandments unto the children of men, save he shall prepare a way for them, that they may accomplish the thing which he commandeth them. Then I say, I told you, I told you you could do it. But how were you able to do it when I asked you? More than likely, everybody will realize that you put the dollar in that book to begin with. To which I respond, that's right. I prepared the way for you to accomplish it. Therefore, I knew that you could do it. The Lord did the same kind of thing with Nephi. Remember how he asked him to get the brass plates? Nephi didn't know exactly how it was going to happen, but God did. And he provided a way. He always does. If God asks us to do something, it's because he already knows that we can do it. Even if it seems impossible. He prepares the way. And here in 1 Nephi 17, what incredibly difficult thing did God ask Nephi to do? Right here in verse 8. He asks him to build a boat. (laughs) Have you ever built a boat? And at this point, this is where our object for this lesson is going to come into play. I look at my students, and with great confidence and pride, I tell them that I actually have built a boat before, and if they want to see it. And then I pull out a boat that I have made out of Legos, and they all groan, right? I tell them that this is the extent of my shipbuilding knowledge, and it was hard enough for me to put this little thing together, and I had the instructions, and I pull out the Lego instruction pamphlet at that point. I had a picture of what it's supposed to look like at the end, right from the very start. Nephi didn't have that. He didn't have the step-by-step instruction booklet handed to him at the beginning of the project. So, can you imagine building an actual boat that you were going to put your family in, your children, and then and push off from the shore into the great deep? This, this is not hollowing out a log to float across the lake. God's asking him to build a ship big enough to fit multiple families in, with enough provisions 
to make a lengthy journey across an ocean. Now, I've heard some teachers say that it would be akin to God asking us to build a rocket ship to move our families to the moon. I'm not sure that analogy is necessary. It would be like God asking us to build a boat to cross the ocean today, right? We'd struggle just as much with that instruction nowadays. We wouldn't even know where to begin. Now, you may not have a Lego boat in your home, and so that idea may not work for you. We have an obscene amount of Legos that we've accumulated over the years. But, uh, however, if you do like this idea and you'd like to purchase a Lego boat, I'll place a link in the video description below for some relatively inexpensive ones that you could get on Amazon. But I think it just helps to put this command into perspective. This is a huge thing to ask of Nephi. Maybe we can understand where Laman and Lemuel are coming from when they doubt Nephi's ability. And here, right at the beginning, we're going to try and liken the scriptures. I like to make the point that God will sometimes give us build a boat commandments or challenges in our life. Things that we may feel are impossible to do. Huge requests from the heavens. So what is one of your build a boat commandments? Something that God has asked of you that you find incredibly difficult to obey or to endure. Or something that you may even feel is impossible. To illustrate this, uh, let me give you some examples of build-a-boat type requests. Maybe one of these things applies to you. Now, you might recognize this list. It's the same list that I would have given back in our uh, Walk on Water lesson in the New Testament. But same kind of situation here. Something that seems impossible. Overcome an addiction. Change your lifestyle. Go through the repentance process after serious errors. Conquer your fears. Learn to control your thoughts. Fulfill a difficult calling. Serve a full-time mission. Consecrate all that you have to God. Forgive the unforgivable. Love the unlovable. Raise a righteous family in an unrighteous environment. Endure crushing disappointment. Rise from an abusive background. Live chaste in an immoral world. And maybe one of the biggest ones from our Savior? Be even as I am. Can you relate to any of those? If you can, then I feel that Nephi can teach us something here. I have a handout that I give my students that has a picture of a boat on it. And I invite them to write their build a boat commandment on the boat and to keep that thing in mind for the rest of the lesson. And then I invite them to study the following references with the challenge of finding as many truths about build-a-boat commandments as they can. Now tell them if they're struggling to see something in one of those references, to not get too worried about it, just skip it and move on to the next one. But I feel that these references have some significant things to teach us about the difficult things that God asks us to do. So let's go through them. First, chapter 17, verses 9 through 10. And I said, Lord, whither shall I go that I may find ore to molten, that I may make tools to construct the ship after the manner which thou hast shown unto me? And it came to pass that the Lord told me whither I should go to find ore, that I might make tools. 
What does that tell you about Nephi's approach to difficult commands? To me, that says that Nephi has no doubt that he's capable of doing this. He's not questioning why or how or what the plans are. He's already starting to figure things out. Another great example of the proactivity and prayer approach that we saw with the broken bow. He thinks to himself, okay, I'm building a ship. To build a ship, I'm going to need tools. To make tools, I need ore. But I, I don't know where to find ore. Lord, I'm going to need your help on that one. Where do I go to find ore? So when God asks us to build a boat, get to work on what you can do and seek God's help on what you can't. 17 verses 13 through 14. And I will also be your light in the wilderness, and I will prepare the way before you, if it so be that you shall keep my commandments. Wherefore, inasmuch as you shall keep my commandments, you shall be led towards the promised land, and ye shall know that it is by me that ye are led. Yea, and the Lord said also that after ye have arrived in the promised land, ye shall know that I, the Lord, am God, and that I, the Lord, did deliver you from destruction. Yea, that I did bring you out of the land of Jerusalem. I believe it's important for us to understand where the strength we have to accomplish impossible things comes from. It comes from Christ. It's not just a you had potential within you that you just didn't realize kind of message. When it comes to certain commandments, our conclusion that we can't do it is often completely accurate. We're right. On our own, we can't do it. But with God, with the strength and knowledge that Christ gives, we can. And let's not forget the source of our strength. The message of this chapter isn't just an empty, motivational poster kind of lesson. I mean, you know, uh, you can do hard things if you just put your mind to it. That's not the message here. So much more. You can do hard things if you put your mind to it, as long as you turn to Christ for strength. Tap into His power. Paul's words come to mind here. I can do all things. But he doesn't stop there. There's no period after that phrase. If there were, it would feel kind of like a corporate America, motivational speaker, self-help kind of sentiment. No, no. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. The story of Nephi building the boat is a great embodiment of that verse. Chapter 17, verses 50 through 51. And I said unto them, If God had commanded me to do all things, I could do them. If he should command me that I should say unto this water, Be thou earth, it should be earth. And if I should say it, it would be done. And now, if the Lord has such great power, and has wrought so many miracles among the children of men, how is it that he cannot instruct me that I should build a ship? Truth this teaches me? When God asks you to build a boat, remember that with God's help and approval, you can accomplish the impossible. If God asks you to do something, inherent in the command is the ability to do it. Whom God calls, God qualifies. It's kind of like the activity, the icebreaker we did at the beginning of the lesson. And another quick thought about this. Those verses 
follow a long sermon given by Nephi from verses 23 to 49 in response to Laman and Lemuel's complaining and refusal to work on the boat. I call it Nephi's Moses sermon. In those verses, he gives example after example of incredibly difficult and miraculous things that Moses and the children of Israel saw and did during the Exodus. Do you see what Nephi's doing there? It's a perfect example of what he says in 1 Nephi 19.23, which is also a part of this week's study. One of my favorite verses about scripture study. For I did liken all scriptures unto us, that it might be for our profit and learning. Nephi practices what he preaches. The scriptures were a great source of strength and faith for him. The whole sermon is an example of likening the scriptures. That's the source of his ability to say, if the Lord has such great power to work those kinds of miracles for them, if he can part seas and rain bread from heaven and draw water from solid rock, then why can't he help me build a boat? It's one of the greatest blessings the scriptures provide for us and a big part of the reason we're asked to study them daily. We're invited to liken them to ourselves, and they give us strength. 18.1 And it came to pass that they did worship the Lord, and did go forth with me, and we did work timbers of curious workmanship. And the Lord did show me from time to time after what manner I should work the timbers of the ship. Now the phrase, the Lord did show me from time to time, stands out to me there. God didn't give Nephi all the instructions at once. I mean, approach this from a carpenter's standpoint. You don't even start cutting until you have the whole plan. You want to know the end from the beginning. But that's not how God always works with us. As, as we seek to build our boats, remember that the instructions are going to come from time to time, little by little. You're going to have to walk and work by faith. Guide us step by step. Go back to our Lego boat example here. It's not like Nephi has the little instruction pamphlet to go from. He had to have faith every step of the way. 18.3 And I, Nephi, did go into the mount oft, and I did pray oft unto the Lord. Wherefore the Lord showed unto me great things. Great things come when we pray oft. Don't expect to get your answers all at once. We've got to pray always if we wish to build our boats. 18.4 And it came to pass that after I had finished the ship, according to the word of the Lord, my brethren beheld that it was good, and that the workmanship thereof was exceedingly fine. Wherefore, they did humble themselves again before the Lord. If we have the faith to build our boats, to endure to the end of the commandment, then the result is going to be good and exceedingly fine. So, so now to take the lesson to heart. Does anyone have experience with any of these principles? Have any of these truths helped you with your own build-a-boat commandments from the past? And how? One of my build-a-boat commandments was to serve a mission. Even though I was an incredibly shy and unconfident teenager. But I put my trust in God and, and had a willingness to obey. 
I got to work. I prayed oft. And with that, he was able to accomplish with me what I thought was impossible. To make a missionary out of me. And my mission changed me, my very nature. So much so that I even became a seminary teacher as a career. I mean, if you had told me as a teenager that my future career was going to involve getting up in front of large groups of people and talking, I would have told you that you were crazy. Say, that's not my personality. That's not me. That's impossible. You might as well ask me to build a boat. But with God's help, I accomplished something that I felt was impossible. God knew otherwise. And he prepared a way. So as an exercise of faith, I want you to take your Build-A-Boat challenge and write it in one more place on this handout. I want you to substitute your Build-A-Boat phrase into verse 51. Write it in the blank and repeat it in your mind. And I think you're going to find it has power. So for example, I might say, And now, if the Lord has such great power and has wrought so many miracles among the children of men, how is it that he cannot instruct me that I should fill in the blank with your command? How is it that he cannot instruct me that I should serve a full-time mission, that I should forgive my enemy, that I should overcome my addiction, that I should fulfill that calling, that I should become like Christ? Therefore, 1 Nephi 17.3 And thus we see that the commandments of God must be fulfilled. And if it so be that the children of men keep the commandments of God, he doth nourish them and strengthen them and provide means whereby they can accomplish the thing which he has commanded them. With that verse in mind, I invite you to go and do that thing. Get to work. Make the tools. Hit your knees and ask God for help. Prepare yourself for the labor. And remember that when God asks you to do the impossible, don't abandon ship. Get to work building your boat. Put your faith and trust in a God that prepares a way, that provides means, and accomplish it, you will. Well, my friends, we've already taken a lot of time, and there are still four more chapters in this section. This is just an overwhelming week for me here. And there are some really great lessons, some great things in those chapters. It actually kind of hurts to pass them by. Honestly, if I tried to cover some more of the amazing lessons and truths in these chapters, these Isaiah chapters that are coming up there, I'm afraid that this would be a three-hour-long video. So rather than trying to race through a bunch of thoughts really quickly and poorly, like I said at the beginning of the video, I'm going to try and model good teaching and let it go, right? But if you would like at least a little bit of help on those chapters, if you're studying and you'd like some of my brief thoughts there, I will include some study questions and some answers in this week's lesson plan on my blog, if you're interested. So I guess I'm not completely letting it go, but... Uh, I wanted to give you just a, a few things there. And with that, my friends, thank you so much for spending this time with me. 
I feel so privileged that I get a chance to, to talk about the scriptures and share these things with you every week. And I pray that you'll come back and join me again next week. Thank you so much for watching. Now get out there and teach with power.